On today's episode of the Read Option, we got a great show lined up for y'all today. We're going to hit a little bit of everything. We're going to touch on some of the organizational dysfunction that we've seen around two teams here in the NFL and their quarterbacks, at least quarterbacks for right now. But, you know, the Super Bowl has passed and we are going to have to move on to some other things. And we're going to dive into college basketball for the first time here on the Read Option. You know, COVID's made a lot of weird things happen in sports and college basketball might be the weirdest of them all, seemingly turned on its head, as well as an interesting trend that's going on with our one and done blue blood programs here moving forward. And we're going to wrap up the show today with a new segment that's going to kind of take us around all of the sports world. Uh, I'm going to need some feedback on the name because I like it, but I'm not 100% sold on it yet. So get ready. Another great edition of the Read Option starts right now. All right, let's bring it in. Another great show. Very excited today. Uh, There's been a lot of news just kind of all over the sports world, whether it's the MLB, the NBA, college basketball, MMA, whatever you're, you're fancy, we got news. But our open today is going to be centered around the NFL. And I know what you're thinking. Jeff, the Super Bowl just passed. So why are you starting with the NFL? Well, you know, things change pretty quickly in the NFL. We just saw it this past year. Tampa Bay Bucks, 365 days ago, they were a very different organization than the one that we saw this past week and take down the Kansas City Chiefs, right? Because that's the nature of the NFL. Between the draft, guys who can come in and play immediately, free agency, good coaching, and a good quarterback, you can change a lot. But the thing is, is that only works when you have good leadership, good ownership. I've said this for years. It is almost impossible to win a championship with bad ownership, with bad, with a bad front office, with bad leadership within your organization. In fact, the only example I've ever really been able to come up with is Dan Gilbert who is the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. And he got a lot of heat for his letter to LeBron uh, and basically axing him from the city when he went to Miami. And of course, when LeBron James wanted to come back to Cleveland, he welcomed him with open arms. But even Dan Gilbert was able to, was willing to dump so much money into the pieces and players and assets needed to help LeBron get to the finals you know, later on in his career, and even before, you know, going out and getting Shaq at the end of his career, spending money on role players who they felt could help LeBron. And even if they've made bad decisions on who they brought in, the fact of the matter is that Dan Gilbert was still willing to pay the, you know, the price tag. He was willing to pay $30 million for a washed up Shaquille O'Neal or a washed up or lesser wash-up version of Ben Wallace. He was willing to do those things, and ultimately that becomes such an important part of ownership being successful in professional sports. But in addition to the owner, take a step down, right? Who's who's right below ownership when you talk about the front office, right? It's going to be your general managers, your presidents. We're seeing something in the NFL right now. We're seeing two quarterbacks, trying desperately to get out of a place that just within the last 20 months gave them both over $100 million contract extensions that have not kicked in for either player. And yet here we are, Deshaun Watson 
and Carson Wentz both doing everything in their power to get out of Houston and Philadelphia, respectively. There are two teams in the NFL who signed their quarterbacks to massive extensions within the last 20 months. One made the playoffs two out of the last four years. The other, three out of the last four years, including a Super Bowl win. And as of this year, both have fired their head coaches. And both of their franchise quarterbacks, and you can put that in quotes depending on how you feel about Carson Wentz, are forcing their way out the door. Now, while both Houston and Philly's ownership and front office have, frankly, fucked up a lot, both are cumulative efforts. And there's blame that goes to everybody involved. Not just ownership, not just the front office, and not just the players themselves. I jotted down a a comparison list here between Wentz and Deshaun Watson. And though some of the details in their you know, rationale for being upset are different. They follow a similar trajectory, right? Carson Wentz, and remember, there is blame to be had on both players. But ultimately, the buck stops with the owners. Ultimately, the buck stops with the front office. And it, it, it takes screw-ups on every level to end up having the level of dysfunction that we're seeing right now. Carson Wentz was hard-headed as hell. He refused to adapt. He wanted to be in more control of the offense. He was calling audibles at the line of scrimmage to check out of the plays that Doug Peterson was calling. Deshaun Watson signed his contract extension after the Houston Texans screwed up mightily, trading DeAndre Hopkins for pennies on the dollar to get a a broken down David Johnson, who objectively actually had a pretty good season this year. Carson Wentz had to deal with Nick Foles winning the Super Bowl and then making another very strong run the following year after he got hurt. Being injury prone absolutely doesn't fall on Carson Wentz. It's not Carson's fault that he got hurt, but he played a hero ball style of quarterback as an Eagle. You know who else did that? Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson accounted for the most amount of a team's offense in a single season in NFL history this past year. Now, we can say, well, why, right? That's the question you're going to ask. Why were both of these seemingly brilliant and talented quarterbacks, MVP candidates, since they've been in the league, both of them? Their front office failed them in a lot of regards. You know, we can look back and look at the players that Howie Roseman and the Eagles drafted to try to help support Carson Wentz, and they've missed on all of them. Andre Dillard looked like he might have some promise. He gets hurt. That's not necessarily the front office's fault. That's part of dumb luck that also plays a role into all this. But they had a chance to draft Justin Jefferson. And, no, you know, Jalen Rager still may be a really good player. But he's not Justin Jefferson, who is arguably one of the best five wide receivers in all of football this year. You look at the other side, as I alluded to just a moment ago. Bill O'Brien traded away the best wide receiver in football, DeAndre Hopkins, inexcusably. Now, again, both guys, Bill O'Brien, Doug Peterson, they're bloody stubborn on their own. 
they were both coaches unwilling to adapt and change to try to help what their quarterback and franchise could do. And when you have two hard-headed people, Bill O'Brien, Deshaun Watson, Doug Peterson, Carson Wentz, they're going to butt heads, especially when they don't see eye to eye. Now, of course, in Philly's case, Carson Wentz being stubborn turned into such a media shitstorm of, oh, he's a bad teammate. He's a bad guy. He, he rubs everyone in the locker room the, the wrong way. Is that true? Do we know that for sure about Carson Wentz? Or is that what the Philly media was, was going after? And there were guys in the Philly media who had vendettas against Carson Wentz, writing absolutely you know, borderline slanderous pieces with unnamed sources who might as well have been practice squad players. The Philly media was absolutely aggressive as hell when it came to the Nick Foles versus Carson Wentz bullshit. Now, the media in Houston, for all intents and purposes, has been pretty kind to Deshaun Watson. I'm sure there are many in Texas right now in Houston who, who are mad at Deshaun, who think he's being childish, you know. And, and to an extent, I get it. He just signed this extension in September of 2020. We're not even six months away from when Deshaun Watson signed his extension. Carson Wentz signed his extension less than 20 months ago, less than two years, 20 months, however, however you want to break it down. But again, it goes back to these guys not having the support they needed. What happened this year after the Eagles drafted Jalen Rager? Well, a lot of people thought, okay, well, they drafted Jalen Rager in the first round. I don't like that pick. We wanted Justin Jefferson. Well, well, maybe they'll go after somebody. Maybe they'll go after another O-lineman. Or maybe they'll go after a defensive back. You know, someone who they can you know, help complete this team. That, remember, had just made it to the playoffs. What did they do? They drafted Jalen Hurts, who it seems, by all reports, is about to be the next Philadelphia Eagles starting quarterback. Full-time, not just for the last you know four or five games of the season like this year. He's going to be their full-time quarterback, assuming Carson Wentz does inevitably get traded. On the Houston side, he's had one of the worst offensive lines arguably ever. You know, they made the Laramie Tunsil trade. And frankly, it just hasn't worked out for him. Dwayne Brown forced his way out of Houston because of ownership and because of the front office. DeAndre Hopkins forced his way out. And now Deshaun Watson's left looking around like, what the hell? What do I got around me? And then on top of that in Houston, they fired Bill O'Brien this year. He was the GM and the head coach. So they're looking for a new GM. Houston's owner goes to Deshaun Watson and says, hey, I want you to be involved in our next hiring of a GM. I want your opinion. I want your feedback. Almost immediately after he did that, which again, Deshaun Watson didn't request. Deshaun Watson didn't ask for that. The owner of the Houston Texans went out of his way to say to Deshaun Watson, I want you to be involved in this. Then almost immediately after, they put together a search committee. 
to try to find their next GM. One of the members of which on it, by the way, was Jamie Roots, the team president, who, because of how poorly this was managed, announced today that he'd be stepping down and resigning as team president. He ignored them all, their recommendations, the people that they should be interviewing, and he hired someone from the New England Patriots organization who doesn't have experience, who doesn't necessarily know the ins and outs of being a GM, but he was a friend of the owner. And that's so much of getting to these places. You'd be shocked at how many GMs and president of football or basketball operations get those jobs because of who they knew and who they were an intern with when they were young and buddied up with and, you know, just kind of kept that number stashed away, keep that relationship strong, right? It's not what you know, it's who you know. And I think we all hope that on some level that wouldn't happen in the NFL or in professional sports, but it does. It happens in every level of every industry. So we we break down all the ways that both Carson and Deshaun and everybody involved in both situations played a role in getting to this point. But it's important to remember that just one year ago, at the end of the 2019-2020 season, both the Philadelphia Eagles and the Houston Texans were in the playoffs. Carson Wentz had thrown for 4,000 yards without having a wide receiver go for over 500. First player to ever do that in NFL history. Balled out down the stretch against the NFC East and miraculously got the Eagles into the playoffs. Unfortunately, Jadavian Clowney cheap shots him in the back of the head, gives him a concussion, and Carson Wentz doesn't get to play more than six snaps in that game against the Seahawks. On the other side, remember what Deshaun Watson did last year, which, you know, was only be up 24 to nothing against the Kansas City Chiefs in the divisional round of the playoffs. Think about that. The Chiefs went on to win the Super Bowl, and they were up 24 to nothing. This is a year ago. So while all of these things were were a couple of years in the making, these decisions, these small mistakes over and over, they get added up and then accelerated through this last year in particular, since they both signed these extensions, things change quickly in the NFL. One year. And both teams made just a few mistakes that completely jolted what should be an exciting time. They took all of the hope and all of that promise that was going to hopefully lead these teams for years and years and years of future success because they had found their franchise quarterback. And now both teams are looking at a rebuild. I'm telling you, man, shit changes quickly in the NFL. All right, it's time to get into a little bit of college hoops. Now, if you haven't been paying attention, which I don't blame you, I think for a lot of people, the unofficial start of college basketball is Duke, North Carolina, which happened this past week, last weekend, I guess. This has been a weird season, a very weird season, especially if you're a blue blood. And look, there's a lot of different blue bloods in college basketball. It's one of those kind of overly used phrases. And you have some like UCLA, Indiana, 
who haven't quite had the same level of success that they once did traditionally. But you also have teams like Duke, UNC, Kentucky, Michigan State, Arizona, Kansas. Schools who have half a century's worth of titles and conference championships and NBA stars. But there's a common thread in that list there, with the exception of Michigan State, who traditionally doesn't fall under this mold, but they were the one-and-done enthusiasts. These programs, Duke, UNC, Kentucky, Arizona, Kansas, not only are they historically significant in college basketball, but they were the early adapters to the one-and-done, which, for those who aren't avid college basketball fans, are the players who come in for one year, the one obligatory year that they have to come in before going to the NBA. Kentucky was the first, right? You think back to the John Wall and Boogie Cousins team, right? And that led into Anthony Davis. That led into Jamal Murray and Devin Booker. And we can, I mean, you can go down the list forever about the one and dones that Kentucky has put out. But last year in college basketball, there was an interesting trend that began. Now, when Zion was at Duke, he was what many thought to be a saving grace for college basketball. Ratings had been declining. A lot of people thought the play itself was declining and that the sport had changed. We were seeing allegations from the NCAA coming left and right. We were seeing punishments for illegal recruiting you know, recruit basically just people giving cash bags. There was the whole Louisville situation with Rick Patino that ended up costing him his job. We saw shoe companies get involved where they were basically the ones giving them the brown paper bag full of cash in exchange for when they would eventually make it to the NBA. You sign with them for to represent you as, you know, they would be your sneaker. And we've seen a lot of schools struggle from it. There's been a lot of sanctions dropped down. The last Louisville championship, which I think was in 2014, and I might have that year completely wrong, forgive me, but all of a sudden the NCAA vacated that title, which is always just one of the stupidest things that we do in sports. Like, like really? Like, well, what, Reggie Bush didn't win the Heisman in 2004, which is one of the greatest seasons that we've ever seen from a running back? Really? Okay, cool. You know, I, I we watched Louisville win that title, like, you can't feed us that kind of bullshit. You know, don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining. We all saw it. It happened. But besides that, the main crux of what that whole process was about was one and dones. And how do we get these exceptionally talented top tier prospects to come to our school? And again, just two years ago, Zion Williamson, remember what that class was, his class going in, his recruiting class was him R.J. Barrett and Cam Reddish. Those three guys were number one, number two, and number three in the nation in terms of ranked prospects by the ESPN Top 100. Last year, we saw LaMelo Ball, who had gone and played professionally, so he may not have had any other choice at that point. I'm not sure if he was eligible to come to the NCAA, but we saw R.J. Hampton as well, who was top 10 prospect, go play in New Zealand, in Australia, in that basketball league over there, which is probably the third or fourth best uh, basketball league 
in the world. Right? You have league in the Spanish league is very good. The Italian league is very good. The Australian league, which also has New Zealand in it, is very good as well. Those guys aren't going to the top schools anymore. Well, it's not that they're not all going there, but it's that there are more options available to them than there ever were before. The number one prospect in 2020 goes by the name of Jalen Green. He went directly into the NBA G League, directly into the NBA G League, where he is getting top-tier professional coaching. He works with veteran players, younger players who are in the league, he gets to scrimmage foreign teams. He gets to scrimmage other teams, other G League teams with other potential prospects. He's playing basketball with grown men. It's one of the things people said about Luka Doncic coming over from Europe. He had spent six years playing with grown men, not other kids who are in college, not other you know 18 to 22-year-olds, not other guys. Where, and on top of it, too, he's playing full seasons. You know, he's getting... 50, 60, 70 games when he was 15, 16 years old in an academy. But Luca came over and was immediately ready to play in the NBA. Now, it takes a lot of adjusting, just like any you know rookie does. But Luca had been prepped to play against grown men. When you play college basketball, you're only allowed to practice a certain amount of days a week, certain amount of hours a week. Honestly, they restricted that much. And on top of it, you only end up playing somewhere between 30 to 40 games. And even still, I think if you run the table all the way, I don't even think it gets up to 40. Whereas the year that Luka Doncic entered the NBA, he had played and he flew to the draft from just winning his Euro championship. So he wins the Euro championship. Two days later, he's in New York getting drafted inevitably first by Atlanta, then traded over to the Dallas Mavericks. He played in that total year. I think it was like 140 basketball games. That experience and that just amount of time being on the court is incredibly valuable. So let's tie it back to the one and dones. The one and dones aren't going to Duke, UNC, Kentucky, as much as they were just two years ago. Now, there's plenty of young, talented players. Duke has a guy who's more than likely going to end up being a lottery pick. Kentucky has young, talented players as well, but Kentucky also has more grad transfers than they've ever had. Kentucky also has more two- and three-year players than they've had probably in the last decade. And look at their records this year. Duke is seven and eight. I don't know how long ago it was that the last time they were under 500, but my jaw hit the floor when I heard it. UNC is 12 and six, not terrible overall, but not quite the UNC we anticipate year in and year out. Kentucky, this is the one that blew my mind more than any and has blown my mind this whole college basketball season. Kentucky is five and 13. They're in last place overall. Not if you count the conference schedule, Vanderbilt is one and eight. So Vanderbilt is the worst team in terms of conference record in the SEC. But if you take the overall record, Kentucky at 5-13 and 13 has three more losses than anyone else in the SEC. Michigan State, another team, Tom Izzo, this one of the most accomplished and well-liked, well-respected guys in all of college basketball, 10-7. and seven. Not too bad. 
until you look at the conference record, which they are four and seven in their own con- in the Big Ten right now, which the Big Ten is loaded. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from that, but four and seven is bad. Very, very bad. Arizona, seven and six in conference. And there's not a single team in the Pac-12 that you think, oh, this team is, is good, right? Now, look, Sean Miller in Arizona, they've had a lot of issues with the NCAA over the last couple of years with violations of recruiting. But still, seven and six, these, these top-tier prospects are going to start going to other schools. Kansas, 13 and seven. They're out of the top 25 for the first time in 12 years. This is a changing of the guard in a lot of ways in college basketball because the, the names that we know, Coach K, Roy Williams, Bill Self, Tom Izzo, they've been doing this for a long time, and things are changing pretty quickly. And they're not going to be around forever. That's part of it. So what does the future of college basketball look like? Well, in the next couple of years, the one-and-done rule is going to get taken away. High school kids are going to be allowed to go enter the NBA draft directly. And if they choose right now, like Jalen Green did, to go to the G League, they'll pay $125,000. And that's not paper bag $125K. That is like straight up legal 125k you can sign an endorsement if you're the top prospect at that point in time and you're getting better coaching elite level coaching and what i honestly believe is that the nba has looked at what soccer has done and looked at what basketball has even done in europe luka doncic came from a basketball academy real madrid which a lot of people think oh well that's soccer well they also have a basketball team in the euro league And so Luka Doncic, from the time he was 14, 15 years old, was going and playing basketball every day while also getting his GED or whatever the European equivalent is. Luka Doncic was able to learn more about how to be a professional basketball player and how to develop his game because of the environment and system he was in than what our current system in here allows for our prospects to do in American basketball which the NBA is still reign supreme and it's not even remotely close. So the NBA is, is trying everything they can to figure out how to incorporate a better development system. The G league has been in the works for a long time. It was the D league for a while. They called it the developmental league. I think it only changed to the G league because of a sponsorship might've been Gatorade. I'm not hundred percent sure. But eventually what's going to happen, in my opinion, and this is just a prediction, right? So I I can't say for certain this is going to happen. But my guess is based off the trends we've been seeing, based on the fact that if you're an 18-year-old kid coming out of high school and the NBA is offering you NBA-level coaching, NBA-level talent to work with, and NBA-level development personnel, in addition to $125,000, that's above board. And you can also then go out and sign an endorsement. You know, like if Zion had been coming out and chose to go to the G League where he could have made $125,000 and then signed a sponsorship with Nike or, or Jordan or whoever it was going to be, that is a lot of potential money that you can get immediately at 18. Now, you can't put a price tag on what it would be like to go learn from Coach K, and I get that. Same thing with Roy Williams. 
But we just saw Kevin White, who was the athletic director at Duke and has been for a long time, announce that he is stepping down from the position at the end of the year to get in newer, fresher blood. Duke also has David Cutcliffe as their head football coach and Coach K, obviously, to coach their basketball team, both of which have been there for a long time. And I'm not saying Coach K is leaving anytime soon, but that generation of coaches eventually is going to step down and there's going to be a new wave of college basketball. And the name, image, and likeness and the transfer portals and all of this player freedom has become so much more impactful because while these guys may be able to understand it, they understand why it's happening. Philosophically, it goes against everything that they've done and the way that they've gone about doing it for the last 30, 40, 50 years for some of them. And that kind of philosophical change in the way that you do your job this late into your career is an extremely hard adjustment to make. So while I don't think it's going to be overnight that all of a sudden the top 50 prospects all decide to go to the G League, and even down the line, I don't know if that's going to what is if that's going to be what happens. College basketball is going through a really weird phase. We're seeing like teams like Clemson jump up into the top twenty-five in basketball. I don't think I've ever seen that in my life. And here's the other interesting thing here, right? The two coaches you can make argument three coaches that have never chased one and done prospects. Jay Wright at Villanova, Tony Bennett at UVA, and Mark Few at Gonzaga. All three of them are known for going after the guys that fit their program, the Ryan Archidiakonos, the Josh Hartz, right? the DeAndre Hunters. These guys who are the Kyle guys. Like, th- these are guys who are not highly regarded prospects coming out of high school. But because of who they are and what their skill sets are and the way they fit what it is that Jay Wright, Tony Bennett, Mark Few have built at those respective programs, they are able to succeed in ways that other programs can't when the one-and-dones shift and change and try different programs. I mean, look at Baylor. Like Baylor has come out of nowhere in the last couple of years, and in my opinion, they're the best team in college basketball right now. Now, I don't know how loaded their recruiting class was, and I think a lot of it has to do with what they've been building down there with that program. But it's impossible to look at the trends over the last couple of years. Like Duke last year. Duke last year probably wasn't going to make the NCAA tournament. Coach K, like, pulled out before they even, you know, had the bracket. And obviously with COVID, they ended up canceling the whole thing anyway. And we never saw a bracket. But there is a shift right now. And the younger generation of coaches, the Chris Beards, the Buzz Williams of the world, those guys have been able to help turn the page into what the next generation of college basketball might look like. And I'll tell you this right now. I think if you eliminate the one and dones, you let the top tier prospects go to the G League or go straight to the NBA right out of high school, you're going to get guys who want to stay at college for four years to play basketball. It's going to feel more like what college basketball used to feel like when it was in its heyday. And of course, you'll have some guys who have a big year and then ultimately get a chance to go try to make it in the uh, the NBA. 
But I think we're going to be seeing it, uh, you know, less and less of that. And more of these teams that you get to know that you don't have to relearn an entire roster year after year after year. Because the one and done is such a stupid rule to have in there anyway. So whether it's good or bad for college basketball, we won't know. And how drastic this ends up changing, I don't know. But it is really, really interesting to see more and more prospects. This year, there were more than the last year, including the number one prospect in all of college basketball going into the 2020 season. He's in the NBA G League, or the G League pathway, as they call it. And when he decides to enter the draft next year, there's going to be a lot of teams that know about him that we won't. And, and the more they're able to build the G League up, the more likely it is that they're going to try to televise some of it. Right, Because that's the one downside is, is you don't get to see Jalen Green play this year. We don't get to see, you know, we didn't get to see LaMelo Ball play last year either, but that also led to some of the spectacle of him coming in this year. And, and frankly, he's been playing really well for the Charlotte Hornets. But I, I like the direction this is going. And this is, again, a prediction. So there's a lot that can happen between now and five years from now. But the current direction that college basketball is heading on is a remarkably fascinating one. And as we see the changing of the guard and the old generation of coaches move their way out, college basketball is going to change with it. Aside from that, though, um, I do want to add a couple other just college hoops thoughts, right, as, as we're kind of going down this. Um, the top 25, you see the teams like, Gonzaga, right? Undefeated. Baylor, undefeated. And then you see Michigan, Ohio State, Villanova, and Illinois. There are three Big Ten teams in the top six. The Big Ten and the Big 12 are kind of battling back and forth between which is the best basketball conference. And if I had said that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, people would have looked at you like you were crazy. The last Big Ten team to win a championship Technically Maryland, but Maryland was even in the ACC back then. So you got to look at the 2000 Michigan State Spartans, old Sparty. And then you look at the Big 12, like, yeah, Kansas had a, has had a championship in 2008. But that's it for them. Texas Tech almost had it a couple of years, or last, yeah, I guess it was two years ago now. And they fell up a little short. Michigan got smoked by Villanova a couple of years ago, so they've been around it. The Big Ten, well, I just bulleted those two. <laughs> the Big Ten and the Big 12. The point is, the Big Ten and the Big 12 have not won a championship in a significant amount of time, and yet they are the clear two best conferences in all of college basketball right now. You know, And after that, you look at teams like UVA. Obviously, Villanova's up there at five. Texas Tech coming in at number seven. Chris Beard's squad coming off of a tough loss last night to West Virginia, who's at 14. They'll jump up. Missouri and Alabama, both having very good seasons out of the SEC. Still weird to me that Missouri is considered a Southeastern school, but, hey, conference realignment's a bitch. You know, what are you going to do about it? Uh, Tennessee's a solid team. The SEC has some sneaky good teams, but then you have to get all the way down to number 20 to find the only Pac-12 team in the top 25, and that is – USC, who, again, a 
pretty good team. I like UCLA, what Mick Cronin's been doing there. I think they're right on the outside of the top 25. Uh, but even the Big East has, a, you know, the Big East is always solid, but Villanova and Creighton, the only two ranked teams out of there. I think Xavier could jump up in the mix there. They've gotten better uh, as the season has progressed. The ACC, we're used to seeing the ACC fill out the top 25. You have to get to number nine to get to Virginia. And then after Virginia, you have to go all the way down to 17, Florida State, 18, Virginia Tech. And that's it. So the ACC, which is supposed to be a basketball conference, had two teams in the college football playoff this year. And right now they only have three teams in the top 25. And Duke and UNC are both on the outside looking in when it comes to the NCAA tournament. Now, UNC definitely still has a chance. I don't think there's a chance in hell Duke gets into the college, gets into the NCAA tournament unless they win their conference tournament. But the issue with that is that there's a lot of uncertainty regarding conference tournaments because it doesn't really make sense and it'll offer a lot of these schools to all fly to a, a, a mutual site and risk the exposure. In a lot of cases, just a week before the NCAA tournament is supposed to start. And yet we'll see programs that are on pause for a month at a time. So if there isn't, you know, there if there is a conference tournament, then yeah, maybe Duke goes on a miracle run and wins it for Coach K and boom, there they are. But I wouldn't hold your breath. The ACC is a pretty weak conference right now. Florida State could make a run. Virginia Tech, uh, to be honest, I'm shocked to see them that high. And, and UVA won the title just a couple of years ago. So I'm not going to hold it you know, and say that it's impossible for any of those teams to make a run and win. But right now, this is a two-horse race. Baylor, Gonzaga, those are the best two teams in the country, and it's not particularly close. The Big Ten, the Big 12, the two best conferences in the country, and it's not particularly close. Keep it locked in, man. College basketball is a wild ride, and I'm telling you what, for what is considered to be one of the most universally beloved sporting events every single year, I am so excited, borderline drooling at the idea of having the NCAA tournament back in our lives because frankly it's just been way too long way too long all right on the other side of this uh, i want to introduce what's going to be our new segment to help kind of close out the show when i'm repping solo and once again if you hate the name or if you like the name please let me know we're going to get into that next all right and we're back once again i know scotty mentioned on the last pod anyone out there who Let's say you have a, something you want to promote. Send it over to me. I'll, I'll read it for free for right now. Uh, honestly, I just want to be able to help break up some of these segments. And, you know, a little ad read here and there isn't the worst thing in the world. And, you know, I don't have a huge audience yet, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Thanks again to everyone who's uh, reviewed, subscribed, done anything for the podcast. It's, uh, again, it's just been, it's been an absolute pleasure to do. So when I did the last pod, last solo pod, I should say, uh, I went through and re-listened and kind of thought to myself, like, you know, there needs to be a segment here at the end. I liked having a final thought kind of a deal, but, you know, with the, the thing with this pod and the thing with me and how I've kind of been my whole life is a, a jack of all trades and master of none. You know, I've, I've always loved 
all sports, you know, whether, whether it was golf, tennis, you know, the Australian Open just kicked off this past week. Obviously, I'm a diehard football fan, NBA fan, college hoops, college football. But I follow it all, man. Even the MMA, like I just, I love sports and in all their forms and fashions. And I, and I love the competitiveness. I've even gotten into soccer to an extent. So my thought was, well, what if I wanted to do a segment where I just picked some of my favorite headlines and storylines and thoughts from all around the sports world because I try to follow the whole sports world. And if I put them all into a, a bowl, like a soup, right? But soup's not a good name. So right now we're going to start off the first ever edition of what I'm calling Sports Gumbo. We had a tremendous meal. Man, we had uh, smothered pork chops, fried chicken, collard greens. Man, the guys loved it. <laughs> Just like one big family eating together. And I'm going to be in about uh, 18 to 22 homes next week. So that means about 18 to 22 gumbos. So uh, <laughs> this is going to be great. So here's our first ever sports gumbo. The Brooklyn Nets don't know how to play defense. Still, they lost to the Detroit Pistons last night. A Detroit Pistons team that makes zero sense, that gave way too much money for a guy in Jeremy Grant who decided to leave a, a possible championship contender to go put up empty buckets for the Detroit Pistons. They also paid out the ass for Miles Plumley. They just traded away Derrick Rose. This team is a bad team. And this is why when, when people have been defending the Brooklyn Nets, they can't stop Detroit. So how the hell are they going to stop the Sixers? How the hell are they going to stop even the Celtics? I mean, they don't have anyone who can protect the rim. They don't have cap space to go out and get anyone who might be able to help. And right now, your biggest competitor in the East is a team with the most dominant big man that we've seen in years. And I mean years. We have not had a truly just dominant seven-footer like Joel Embiid in a long time. So if you're Brooklyn, you can say, oh, but we can score 140 on any given night. Yeah, you might be able to, but if the other team puts up 142, it doesn't really matter then, does it? That's what we saw when they lost to Washington a couple weeks ago. That's what we saw last night when they lost to Detroit, except they didn't even score that much last night. So when they and, and then what happens, too, when you get into the NBA playoffs is it becomes a half-court game, right? All of basketball changes. It becomes a half-court game. So you won't be able to just run and shoot threes. And who knows, maybe they're even better in a half-court offense. But you know what they're not going to be better in a half-court? The defense. Their defense is going to get absolutely torn apart in the playoffs. And you may have Kevin Durant, who's hit a game-winning shot in LeBron's face. And you may have Kyrie Irving, who hit a game-winning shot in Steph Curry's face. And you may have James Harden, who's won an MVP and has put up stats offensively that we've never seen before. One of the greatest offensive players to ever play in the NBA. But when you can't stop anybody, you're not going to win a lot of games. And you're definitely not going to win a championship. Okay. 
college football is a weird, weird universe sometimes. There's a lot of conventional logic that you would think, oh, yeah, like why, wait, wait, why did they do that? Why, why is this a thing? Tradition? That's a, oh, okay. That seems weird, but sure. College football scheduling has always done this one weird thing, which is that when they schedule games, they like to schedule them out so far in advance. And they do it for wiggle room. They do it to be able to get in and out of certain games that maybe they regret having signed up for. But we saw Florida and Notre Dame schedule a home-and-home series for 2031 and 2032. To quote the great John Mulaney, 2032, that's not a real year. I'm going to be drinking moon juice in 2032 with our boy Elon Banking on Dogecoin. 2031-2032. Do you know what we saw this year in college football because of the pandemic? That none of that fucking matters. There's no need for it. It's so unnecessary. And again, why? To be honest, I ask people a lot smarter than me in, in the college football world about this. And a lot of times they don't even have answers. A lot of times, I don't know, it's just dumb. A lot of people think it's so they can have a little bit of wiggle room to get out. And some people think it's because coaches like to make it seem like they're doing stuff. But does anyone out there remember the Coastal Carolina-BYU game this year? For those who don't remember, I'll set the scene. Coastal Carolina was undefeated. BYU was undefeated. BYU is an independent, so they have to basically every single year design a whole new schedule. There is no conference schedule. They play certain teams every single year like their in-state rival, Utah, for example. Coastal Carolina being a smaller group of five team, knowing they would have to have an outrageous resume to even sniff the college football playoff, and then even still, we all knew they weren't going to be able to do that. They decided, hey, we have an open week because there was a COVID cancellation for our game this upcoming week. I forget who was originally scheduled against. And they wanted something to kind of strengthen their schedule. So you have an undefeated BYU team who is ranked in the top 15 and an undefeated Costa Carolina team, I believe was ranked 16th in the nation at that point. And on three days notice, they put together a game between BYU and Costa Carolina. Three days. And they weren't even sure if it was going to get officially signed off on and done. And just to be sure, because they were going from Utah all the way out to South Carolina, BYU sent their equipment managers out on the road without knowing if the game was even fully scheduled and official yet. And they said, you're going to stop in Kansas or Oklahoma, and we'll let you know by the time you're there. And you, you might have to turn around. I only know that because the truck drivers called into our radio show when that was going on. We had the equipment manager from BYU on to start off a show one day. He texted their truck driver, said, hey, call into ESPNU Radio. Check these guys, you know, tell them your story. His name was Hal, the one who called in. And Hal told us all about, you know, yeah, they told me, you know, start driving out towards the East Coast, and if we have to call you back, we'll call you back. Driving across massive states, halfway across the country, not knowing if they were even actually going to need to go or not. 
and they got it done. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do this every time and that this is how we should schedule games now, but it proves the point that scheduling games 10 years in advance is just complete bullshit. And it doesn't do anything for college football other than increase fake excitement. I mean, I'm going to be 35 years old when that game gets played. Tell me how that's supposed to excite me. Fuck out of here. I get right there, Kalei. I ran out. Hey. Ha ha. The national anthem gets played before every single sporting event. Every single one. And, you know, I've never asked myself why. Luckily, I didn't have to because this week, everybody on Twitter seemed to be asking why. Why do we have to play the national anthem before sporting events? The reason people were asking that question is because Mark Cuban came out and said that they hadn't been playing the national anthem before any Dallas Mavericks game this year. And it brings up a really good point. Not necessarily political, but just why do we do this? And I found that in life, when the answer to a question like that is purely tradition, for tradition's sake, that's not really a good answer. It doesn't really stand on, on, on firm grounds when you're talking about a debate, which is this is the way we've done it. We've always done this. Now, I'm not saying we should or shouldn't. I don't mind the pageantry. It's given us moments like Whitney Houston singing the national anthem before the, what was it? The, it was one of the Bills' Super Bowls that they unfortunately lost. And it's an incredibly powerful moment. It's also delivered us things like Fergie singing the national anthem at the NBA All-Star Game, which wasn't too funny to her, but to the rest of the world was absolutely fucking hilarious. So I think there is value to it, but it begs the question, why? You know, do we, do we need to do this? Now, depending on whether you like or dislike Colin Kaepernick, I personally think what he did was awesome. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there who thought it was disrespectful to the nation, to the troops, which is bullshit because, you know, when, you, when, when people go overseas... They fight for your freedom to be able to protest. And the guy who he asked, by the way, for advice on what should I do to help protest was a Green Beret. So I don't know what the right answer is. But I do know, again, when your justification for it is it's just how we've done things, it's just tradition, it's a weak argument. Oh, damn. The last ingredient here for our first ever sports gumbo is about Calvin Johnson. Now, I know what you're thinking. Calvin Johnson, Hall of Famer, 2021 class. But no, it's actually a Calvin Johnson weed guy. <laughs> Calvin Johnson Weed guy. Now, not in your traditional sense, right? He's not a, some giant stoner, right? He's not Seth Rogen. You know, we're not going to see him in the, the sequel to Pineapple Express. But what he's done in his post-playing career has been heavily investing in 
the marijuana industry because he understands all of the backstory in the NFL when it comes to drug testing, but also how brutal it is to be an NFL player and the toll that it takes on your body. There's a great excerpt from this piece on ESPN.com. Now, Calvin Johnson did this with his former teammate, Rob Sims, who was an offensive lineman for Detroit. Johnson and Sims went from a life of football in which so much was dictated and provided to the world of a startup building everything from scratch. They created Primitive, a cannabis company they hope will improve quality of life for those in pain, eliminate some of the negative connotations around marijuana, and of course, make money in their second career. Now, that last bit, making money, the cannabis industry is going to blow up here as we move towards a federal legalization. Now, it's right now there's 15 states plus Washington, D.C., which was cited here in this article that have legalized marijuana fully. But the more important aspect of this were the first two points there at the end. They hope this company will help improve quality of life for those in pain and eliminate some of the negative connotations around marijuana. We've seen NFL players have their entire careers borderline taken from them because of the way the NFL has viewed marijuana. Josh Gordon, Ricky Williams, both of which are very different circumstances. Josh Gordon has been in and out of rehab, but he also wasn't given any help from the NFL for that. He was rather punished for that. If you have addiction issues, then yeah, you, you, you shouldn't be using marijuana just recklessly or free will. You should, you should be more conservative about it or not at all. But a guy like Ricky Williams, he was just using it so he could walk. He was just using it so he could, you know, be with his family without being in pain, live a normal life after dedicating his to the NFL. And Ricky Williams is drug tested more than any player in NFL history. Like we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of drug tests over the course of a 10-year career, 10 to 15-year career. So that stigma that is attached to it, as well as the ability for cannabis to actually help these players heal, there are countless NFL players who use cannabis on the regular. And we saw the NBA this year stop drug t- stop testing for it in their drug testing because they recognize the value that it can have. And rather than punishing players who test positive for cannabis when they get drug tested, help make sure that they use it responsibly instead of just throwing a bunch of pills down your throat the, op- the opioid epidemic in the NFL goes back a long, long time. Guys getting shot up with Lord knows what, given Oxycontin and pain meds on the regular, just so they can go out and, and again, live normal lives. Except marijuana is not an opioid. Marijuana isn't going to hook you or, or potentially kill you in the same way that those drugs can So while I started this off by joking, saying Calvin Johnson, weed guy, he's a good weed guy. 
He's out there fighting a good fight to try to help give players who struggle with addiction more of an opportunity to overcome it while also allowing the players who benefit from it and people who benefit from it to have better access and less judgment for wanting to use it for those reasons. And I think that's pretty dope. Pun intended. Um, that's all I got. I hope you guys like the sports gumbo bit. Uh, let me know what your thoughts are. Rate, review, subscribe, share it. Once again, I'll say pick one person, one person in your life who you think might like this pod and tell them about it. Uh, every single listener counts. Uh, and once again, thank you for checking us out here. And I, I can't wait to see where this thing goes. We're going to be back next week. We're going to break down the Al Davis documentary. We're going to get into some early draft stuff. I'm a big NFL draft head, so we're going to have a ton of draft content coming out for you here as you know, Mel and Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay's mock drafts continue to be released. So everyone have a wonderful rest of your week, a wonderful weekend, and we'll be back with you next week on the Read Option. Take it easy, everybody.